most of us, if not all of us, uh, we have known someone, we have seen someone, we have encountered someone, maybe even read about someone. And for whatever reason, there was something about that person that left us thinking, and maybe even we said it out loud, I would like to be like that person. Uh, whatever it was, something stood out, something got noticed, uh, there was a virtue, there was an attribute, there was discipline, you know, whatever it was, you looked at that person and you thought to yourself, I wanna be like that person. Uh, on the other hand, I think we've all known someone, we saw someone, we encountered someone, uh, we watched them from across the room, whatever it was, and uh, whatever reason, in that moment, we thought, our, we thought to ourselves, I don't want to be like that person. You know, you go to the ball game and you see that crazy guy and he's acting a fool and you're like, I don't want to be that guy. You go to the restaurant, you see some lady, she's rude with the waitress and you're thinking, I don't want to be that woman. But something stood out. You saw someone, you said, I don't want to be like that person. You saw somebody else and you said, I want to be like that. Uh, both of those two are important because one shows you and reminds you and demonstrates for you what you want to be, and the other demonstrates and reminds you about what you don't want to be. And we need both. We need both examples uh, to show us what we want to be and, and to show us perhaps what we need to be. Uh, and I say that because today we kick off a brand new series called That Church. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about that church that we want to be like, and we're also going to be talking about that church that we don't want to be like because knowing the type of church we want to be and don't want to be helps us be the church the times requires us to be and the church God desires us to be and so we want to be that church we want to be the right type of church we want to make sure that we're taking the right steps forward in order to be the church that the times that we live in requires us to be and also uh, the church that we believe that God uh, wants us to be and desires us to be and calls us to be uh, so when it comes to churches, and uh, you know this already, but I'll just remind all of us, when it comes to churches, there are all types of churches, and all kinds of churches, because there's all kinds of people, and, and people make up the church, so if there's all kinds of people, then there must be all types of churches. So when it comes to churches, there are good churches and bad churches. Uh, if you don't believe there's bad churches, just read the New Testament. Uh, just because the word church is in the name or over the door or on the marquee doesn't necessarily make it a good church, doesn't necessarily make it a bad church either, but you gotta pay attention and, and you gotta observe and you gotta know some things. So when it comes to churches, there's good churches and there's bad churches. There's conservative churches and less conservative churches. There are liberal churches, there's legalistic churches. Uh, there's churches that you know have choirs and choir robes. I, I've been in one of those churches before. And and there's churches that have bands, been in one of those churches before. Uh, there, there are churches that keep the lights all the way up, and then there's churches that bring the lights all the way down. Uh, there's churches that sprinkle for baptism. There's churches that dunk in baptisms. We're going to dunk some people a little bit later, uh, but you're going to get to see that firsthand. And, and so, you know, there's churches that take communion every single week. Uh, there are churches that take communion once a month, once a quarter, a couple times a year. Uh, there are churches where people wear suits, and that's what's expected and that's what's comfortable and, and that's you know kind of you know what people do and then there's churches where you know people dress casual and you know you may see some people in some shorts you may see some folks in jeans and so it just goes all across the spectrum there's all types of churches now some of you don't know this uh, many of you in Williamsburg may not know this or Somerset and, and perhaps many of you right here this morning in London but I grew up in a church that was much different than this church 
Uh, matter of fact, if you got in the car today and drove to Bell County and pulled in the parking lot at the church that I grew up in when I was a kid, it wouldn't look like our church. It wouldn't sound like our church. You walk in the front doors. It, there, there's nothing about the church that I grew up in that would remind you of this church. So I grew up in a church that was much different than this church. It was a small conservative, conservative about most things, but not all things, conservative Baptist church. That's how I grew up. That, that's kind of my story. And, and in the church that I grew up in, there, there was a dress code. It, it wasn't written down anywhere, but it was certainly understood. And, and the dress code w- was like this, you know, men wore pants and women wore dresses. And if there was any deviation from that dress code, there was gonna be a problem. If any man showed up to church without his pants on, that's a big deal, <laughs> big deal. And if the wife put on the pants, which everybody knew she already wore them anyway, but if she showed up in his pants, I mean, that was gonna be, I mean, it would have upset the apple cart. Nobody had written that down at any point in time, but everybody seemed to understand it. Did anybody else grow up in a church that had you know, an unspoken dress code? Yeah, so many of us. And, and, and here's the thing, if you didn't grow up in church, God bless you. you you've escaped some of this wildness that some of us ha- have dealt with over our lives. But that was the church that, that I grew up in. And also, you know, in the church that I grew up in, you know, there would be, you know, the opening, you know, choir songs. And then someone who would lead the service, they would get up and, and, and they would say this. If God has put a song on anybody's heart, if anybody wants to sing, just come on. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And it's like, you know, that means anybody could sing. I mean, if you walked into church that day and the wind blew sideways and you mistook it for God putting a song on your heart, you could just get up there and sing. And so I was sitting in the back of the church and it just drove me crazy. I wasn't even a professional Christian then. And I would sit back in the back of the church as a kid and I would think to myself, that's a terrible thing to do. And so has anybody got a song? And so help me Jesus. Call him as my witness right here. It seemed like every single Sunday, God put a song on Sister Ethel's heart. (laughs) Ethel would get up and say, God's put a song on my heart. And I was angry at God for years for putting songs on Ethel's heart. And and it was just so troublesome. And and bless her heart, Ethel could not sing. And so it was a theological problem. I know that God sees the heart, but God also has ears. And so I couldn't understand why God would give Ethel a heart. So I went to my dad because my dad kind of ran the church. And and I went to my dad, who's a chief deacon. I said, Dad, okay, listen, you know, I never ask about anything like this. Can you all do something? Can you all pass a rule? Can you all pass a law about, you know, keeping people, you know, from singing, namely Ethel. Ethel, if you're watching this morning, I am so sorry. Uh, but, but this is my payback. Uh, I, I, I say, Dad, can, can, you not, can, can y'all just not pass a law, a rule uh, about who can sing? And he said, son, we can't do that. We can't tell, you know, who can sing and who can't sing. I said, of course you can't. You've got rules about who can preach and who can't. I, I said, I've already got the wording for it. It's super simple. If you can't sing, you can't sing. That's it. That's all you got to do. And so that, that's, that's the church that I grew up in. Anybody else grow in that type of church? You know, if you had a song, you could sing it. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that here. And uh, <clears throat> so after, you know, the choir and after, you know, the special and after the sermon, then, then you know, the pastor or, you know, the service leader would get up and say, hey, does anybody got a word they want to say? 
Anybody got a testimony? Anybody got anything on their heart? And after you've endured the singing and you've endured Ethel and you've endured the sermon, then it's like, we're gonna make it last as long as humanly possible. And, and all these people would just start talking. And to me, I couldn't imagine showing up here at the Creek Church on any given Sunday and saying, has anybody got anything on their heart they wanna stand up and just share with the church? No, why don't you just get up and say, is the devil here? Would the devil like to say a word? Go ahead, devil, tell us what, yeah, I mean, it just seemed like it could go so terrible, but that, that was the church that I grew up in. And like I said, we're Baptists, but we weren't, we weren't the dead type of Baptists. We didn't end at 11 o'clock sharp, you know, start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dead. That wasn't us. I mean, it was a shouting church. Anybody else grow up in a church where people, you know, they, man, I'm telling you, they shout and just not shout. I mean, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. I'm educating you right now. All right. It would be a blood curdling shout. And if you happen to be in church that day with hell in you, it scared it out of you. I'm telling you, it was, it was unbelievable. It just, it, it, that was the church I grew up in. Now, for, for some of you, you grew up maybe in that type of church. You grew up in, you know, a different type of church than this one, but it was different from the one that I grew up in. Uh, but many of us, uh, we have at least had some exposure to church. Uh, and like I said, if you didn't grow up in church, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that was a good thing for you, as you'll find out in just a minute, because you, you didn't get pre-wired with some of the things that some of us got pre-wired with. Uh, but many of us who grew up in church, they were all kinds of different churches. Some of you grew up in churches that emphasized truth-telling. And so you came away with the understanding. It wasn't the right understanding, but you came away with the understanding that if you're going to tell the truth, you got to be hateful. And if you're not hateful, you're not telling the truth. And, and you know, so you, you, kind of, you kind of left childhood with that understanding of church. And, and some folks grew up in a church that emphasized holiness. And it was all about, you know, how you dressed and your hair and jewelry and makeup or no makeup and no, you know, any of those things. There were all kinds of rules about it because it was all about holiness, holiness, holiness. Uh, some of you, uh, you grew up in churches that talked about politics all the time and it drove you crazy. It's one of the reasons why you stopped going to church because you just couldn't handle all the politics. And basically the message that you heard most weeks uh, was this, that if you're a real Christian, uh, you're gonna vote Republican and not drink beer. But if you are gonna drink beer, just go ahead and vote Republican uh, because you know it would be better to do that than not do that. And, and so you grew up in that kind of style of church and then it just goes on and on and on and on. All kinds of different churches. And what that means is most every person who attends a local church has an opinion about the local church. Most everybody has an idea or an opinion about what should happen when the local church gets together on Sunday. Everybody's got an experience. Everybody's got a filter. Everybody's got this, you know, past that they bring into the present. And we all have some kind of expectation and understanding about what we think or don't think the church should be, what it should sound like, what it shouldn't sound like, how the sermon should be, what the sermon shouldn't be, how the music should be, you know, how it should look, how people should dress. I mean, people have got all all kinds of opinions about the local church. So in this series, we're gonna talk about this particular local church. If you're a guest of ours, not talking about your church, talking about our church, because in this series, I want us to understand what type of church we are. I want us to understand what type of church we want to be. I want us to understand based on the season of life that we're all in, based on the culture, based on everything that's happening in the world, I want us to understand what type of church we want to become to understand what we want to let go of as a church and understand what we never want to let go of as a church. And so that's what this series is all about. It's about this church. So if you call the Creek Church your church, I want you to understand more about who we are and more about who we want to be. Uh, because when we talk about the local church, we get really excited because we believe this right here, that the local church is the hope 
of the world. Let's all just say that out loud together. The local church is the hope of the world. And not only is it the hope of the world, but it's God's plan to change the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not, you know, what happens, you know, just on Sundays. The church are people who follow Jesus. And so if you follow Jesus and you call the Creek Church your church, you are a part of this local church. You are a part of the hope for the world. That means if you've got you know, issues about what our community looks like or what our state looks like or what our country looks like or what the world looks like, it means you are the hope of the world. We are the hope of the world. We are God's plan to change the world and there is no backup plan. We are the church. So to talk about the church is a really big deal. So one of my favorite books in the New Testament because I love the local church so much is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's the story of Jesus' life. And then the book of Acts is the follow-up to the Gospel of Luke. And it's the story of the church. And it covers about a history of 30 years. And during that 30 years, the world changed. In the book of Acts, from start to finish, it's about 30 years. And it records the early Christians, the first Christians, and the first church. And so that's why the book of Acts is such an important thing because we learn so much about what the church is supposed to be and what the church isn't supposed to be in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, there's the story of one particular church that I wanna tell you this morning. And, and it's, a, it's a story that has multiple parts to it. So I need you to, to zone in and just to listen just a little bit because I think you'll be glad that you did. But the story of Acts introduces us to the story of one particular church that I think is the most important church in all of history. And I think that there's a lot to learn from this one particular church. But before I tell you about that church, uh, I need to tell you about you know, the beginnings of the church. Of course, I hope you know this, but you know, Jesus, he, he was crucified on Friday and he died for the sins of the world and he was buried. And then on the first day of the week, God raised him from the dead. And, and his disciples who before his resurrection were absolutely fearful uh, after the resurrection and they became eyewitnesses of Jesus's resurrection, they became fearless. And so everything changed after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is gonna spend a few weeks with his disciples and with a handful of women after the resurrection. And he's gonna have all kinds of conversations with them, most of them we don't know. But before Jesus ascends back into heaven, he's gonna ascend back into heaven where he sits today at the right hand of God the Father and the church and Christians around the world. We wait on his second return because we believe that one day Jesus will come back and make right everything that is wrong with the world. But before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he looks at his disciples. He looks at his followers, a small group of them outside of Jerusalem, and he says, okay, before I leave you, I'm gonna tell you the most important thing that's in my heart. I'm gonna give you a mission. I'm gonna give you your purpose for existing from here on out. I want to tell you what I want you to spend the rest of your life consumed with, obsessed with. I want to give to you the most important thing that as one of my followers is more important than anything else. And so then he looks at them and says words we've all heard before. He looks at them and says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do that this morning. At, at the close of our service, we're going to, you're going to see a bunch of people be baptized. And this is something that we have been doing since Jesus told Christians to do this in the very beginning. For 2,000 years, the church has been making disciples and baptizing people. 
That's the thing that we always want to be the most important thing here at the Creek Church. The most important thing here at the Creek Church, we always want this to be true, are these words, that we are to go and make disciples of all people. And we're to baptize them and teach them what Jesus taught his first disciples who taught the next generation of disciples who taught the next generation of disciples until this present moment. And so we've been doing this for 2,000 years. And this is supposed to be the thing that fires us up most. This is the thing that we're supposed to care more about than anything else is seeing people come to faith in Christ. And so Jesus ascends back into heaven. The believers, they go to Jerusalem. They go inside this upper room. There's 120 of them. The day of Pentecost comes. The spirit of God falls. The church is born. Peter goes out and preaches. Thousands of people flood into the church and the church is off to the races. For the next two or three years, the church, it's business as usual. The church is growing and it continues to grow and increase in numbers. And it says from day to day, they kept on telling people about Jesus at the temple courts and from house to house. And they did this for the next two or three years. And then as the church kept getting so large, the Jewish temple authority said, okay, we gotta, we gotta stop this because whenever the church starts being the church, there's always religious people who will not approve always and forever. It was true then, it's true today. When the church is the church, there will always be a group of religious people who will not approve. And so what they decided to do, they decided to hire their their best man. They decided to bring in a hired gun. And so they brought in one of their best and brightest future leaders, a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and they hired him to stomp out Christianity. They hired him, gave him the job description, we want you to end Christianity once and for all. And so when he showed up on the scene, he decided he was going to throw a big rock in the pond and make some big ripples. So he made a big statement from the very beginning and he put a Christian to death. He did it publicly and he did it in a horrific way. He had Stephen, a young deacon in the church, he had him stoned to death. And all the other Christians in Jerusalem, they either saw this or they heard about it. And he wanted Christians to know, your days are numbered. If you're going to be a Christian, You might want to rethink it. And if you're not a Christian, you don't want to become one because this is how it's going to go for you. And so it says in the book of Acts that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. This is important. In Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, Jesus had told them before he went back into heaven, he says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to start in Jerusalem. Then I want you to go to Judea, then I want you to go to Samaria, and then I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, for two or three years, the church has been real serious about telling people about Jesus, but they've only been real serious about telling people, you know, concerning Jesus right in Jerusalem. They've not gone any further than Jerusalem. Jesus told them to go to the entire world, but two or three years after that, they are still in Jerusalem. They've not moved. They're comfortable, but then persecution comes. And it's that pressure from the outside which is gonna lead to the progress of the church. Because some church folks get uncomfortable, because persecution comes, they're gonna leave Jerusalem and they're gonna take the story of Jesus with them. And so let me just pause there and say something to all of us American Christians. If you listen to American Christians talk long enough, the thing that we seem to be most fearful of concerning the future of what's happening in our country is the potential of persecution against Christians. Now, I'm not looking forward to persecution. I'm not even inviting persecution, but I'm just saying that over the course of Christian history, the church has seemingly you know, been at its best 
when we have not been popular. When there has been persecution, when there's been pressure from the outside, that seems to be what kind of jars us back into reality. The church got comfortable in Jerusalem. They got caught up in their lifestyle, just like we do. They got busy. They had their schedules. They had their extracurriculars. You know, they had kids. They had grandkids. They were doing all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, persecution breaks out. And they leave Jerusalem and they, they think, well, we'll just take the story of Jesus with us. And so the church begins to grow. Now, something incredible happens. It's a great story, but I don't have time to tell it to you. But Saul, who was hired in Christianity, uh, became a Christian. And, and the temple, you know, they just couldn't buy a break. I mean, they hired a guy to stop Christians and he became one. And so once Saul became a Christian... He changed his name to Paul. That's why we call him the Apostle Paul. He changed his name to Paul. He went to Jerusalem to meet the disciples. After he met them, he started preaching. There was a group of Jews who wanted to kill him. So they sent him out of town up to Tarsus and he's gonna disappear for the next seven or eight years. And so after the disciples send Paul out of town, it says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So the church has left Jerusalem. It's in Judea, it's in Samaria, it's in parts of Galilee. And another eight or nine years go by. Another eight or nine years, which puts us about 10 to 12 years after the resurrection. So let's just, let's just make it a good easy number to remember. Let's say 10 years. We're 10 years after the resurrection. Jesus said, go to all the world. And as far as they've gone is Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. 10 years in. And then there's something that happens that's going to change everything. It's going to change the entire book of Acts. It's going to change the course of future history. Simon Peter, who was the leader of the church at that particular time, one of Jesus' apostles, Simon Peter went to the coast. He went to the beach. You know, everybody loves to go to the beach. He went to the beach. He went to this little town called Joppa. Joppa's right on the Mediterranean. I've been there. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He went there to a friend of his, Simon, who was a tanner. And so it was about lunchtime, it was about noon. And so Peter, he thought, well, it's almost noon. So I'm gonna go up on the roof. I'm gonna enjoy the scenery. I'm gonna enjoy the Mediterranean breeze. And I'm gonna go pray because, you know, they prayed at noon. And, and so he went up there and he's gonna pray. They're downstairs, they're making lunch. And so he's hungry, he's trying to pray, but all he can smell is food. And, and he can't think to pray. And he just keeps on smelling that food, thinking, man, lunch, lunch smells great, that's incredible. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees an entire sky kind of raining unclean food. Now, Jewish people had a strict dietary code. They believed that certain animals were clean and certain animals were unclean. And if you touched or ate an unclean animal, you too were made unclean. So he sees the sky basically raining unclean animals. And then he hears a voice. And this is what happens next. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And listen to what Peter says, because this is really important. Surely not, Lord. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Time out, question mark. Why has he never eaten anything unclean or impure? Because the Old Testament told him to do that. The law of Moses, Leviticus 11, even predating, you know, the law of Moses to Genesis 17. I mean, you could go to all kinds of places in the first five books of the Bible and you could find verse after verse after verse after verse where God said, eat this, don't eat this. You know, eat this, don't eat that. Because if you eat that, you're going to be unclean. Don't do that. And so this, this was so important to Jewish people. And so now all of a sudden he hears a voice that says, kill and eat. 
And other than circumcision, there was nothing that was more protected, there was nothing more important to the Jewish people than their dietary habits. It's what set them apart from all the other cultures of the world. This is something they've been practicing for 1,400 years. You talk about a long tradition. You talk about a long-seated theology. For 1,400 years, they've been practicing this. And then it says, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What? This, this is a theological conundrum for Peter because the Old Testament told him not to eat unclean foods, but now he's hearing the voice of God telling him to eat these unclean foods because these unclean foods are no longer unclean. God has made them clean. And now he, he doesn't really know what to do because now he's hearing the voice of God say, do what I told you not to do in the Old Testament. And that gets real uncomfortable really quickly. God said, don't do this. But then later on, he came along and said, no, no, I'll tell you, you can do that. And so now all of a sudden, things that Peter has believed, things that Peter has been taught for generations in his family, things that the Jewish people have accepted for generations is now being challenged. And here's what God is basically trying to teach Peter. Peter, there's going to have to be some things you're going to have to leave behind in order to move the church forward. There's going to have to be some things that you have to leave behind and let go of in order to move the church forward. Peter, you're going to have to adjust your interpretation of Scripture. You're going to have to adjust your interpretation of the Old Testament based on Jesus now. Jesus is now reinventing the way that you're supposed to read the Old Testament, Peter. So now there was an old covenant that's been replaced by a new covenant and, and Peter's trying to make sense of this and so are all the rest of the Christians in just a few months. They're all gonna be trying to make sense of this. Had Peter been misinformed? Had Peter been taught wrongly? No, things had just changed and they were still holding on to some of those things that were hindering the mission, that were keeping them from going to all the world. So Peter has these strong views about clean and unclean, but now... God's trying to deconstruct that. He's been taught this from a kid. This is ancestral conscious, you know, that, that God now is trying to untangle. Think about this. Every single one of us, whether we were church people or not church people, we have all been taught things. We have heard things, whether firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand. We've heard things preached. We've heard things taught. We picked up a book. We heard it on the radio. And all of us have been missed, you know, all of us have been informed to some degree or the other about some really important things. What if we were misinformed? What if you found out that the information you were given once upon a time about some really important things actually turned out to be misinformation? Do you know how difficult it would be to let go of what you'd been taught your entire life to embrace a new way of thinking? Well, imagine how difficult it was for Peter. So. While Peter's having this vision, there's another guy a few miles away in the city of Caesarea. His name is Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, which meant that he was a Gentile. And Jewish people and Gentile people did not get along because not only did Jewish people think that animals were clean and unclean, they also thought that humans were clean and unclean. And Gentiles were considered unclean. They were considered unwanted and unloved by God from the Jewish perspective. The Jewish people were chosen, Gentiles were not chosen. The Jewish people were in the family of God, the Gentiles were not inside the family of God. And so Cornelius is a Gentile and he has a vision and God tells him in this vision, you need to hear from Peter. 
So send some folks to Peter. He's down there in Joppa and bring him to your house. And so that's exactly what they do. So Peter comes down off the roof and there's a group of people from Cornelius' house saying, hey, listen, Cornelius has had a vision. God told us to bring you to Cornelius because you had something he needed to hear. And so again, we're 10 years after the resurrection and Peter, he's just had this vision. So he, he's still trying to wrestle with what all that means about clean and unclean. And now the animals that he'd been taught all of his life were unclean. God has now said, I have made them clean. And so he, he's all off of his equilibrium. And so he goes to the house of Cornelius and I imagine that he stood there at the threshold because Jewish people were not allowed to do business with Gentiles. They were not allowed to touch Gentiles. They were not allowed to go into the house of Gentiles because Gentiles were such bad sinners. They were so far away from God. They were so far outside the covenant of God. Jewish people just wouldn't get near Gentiles. And so here is Peter at the threshold of Cornelius's house. And here's what Peter says. You are well aware that it is against our law Talking about the Old Testament. It is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The implication being, just a few hours ago, I would have called you impure and unclean. But because I had this vision, now I'm trying to connect the dots. And now I realize that you're not impure and you're not unclean. And it had to be such an awkward moment because there's a Gentile full of people, you know, Gentile, you know, a house full of Gentile people. And, and, and Peter's like, you know, you know, a few hours ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be around you type people. There's no way I would be at this house. And, and so, you know, everybody's listening because, you know, Peter, he, 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 I think probably he didn't say it exactly the way he meant it or maybe the way it came across, but it's like, you know, we can't hardly understand just how big the divide was between Jewish people and Gentile people. Or maybe we can. Think about that person that you just don't understand. Think about those people you just, if you're honest, you just don't like. Think about that group that you think are so far from God, you think are such bad sinners, you think they're so dark and so evil, Think about that person that once upon a time they offended you, they hurt you, they lied to you. Think, think about the person you don't want to be around, the people you don't want to be around, the people you wouldn't invite to your house, the people you wouldn't let hang out with your kids. Think about those people for just a moment. And maybe you get a little bit of the taste of how Jewish people felt about Gentiles. And then it says, then Peter began to speak. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. He says, listen, I have discovered just this morning just this morning, that there's no difference between us Jewish people and you Gentile folks. I have realized that we are both sinners and we are both in need of a savior. We're both in need of the grace of God. We're both in need of Jesus. I've realized that God does not you know, show favorites. It's not that he's for the Jews and against the Gentiles or for the Gentiles and against the Jews. No, he's equal opportunity. He's invited us all in. And this is a big deal for Peter because he's fresh on the heels of learning this. He's letting go of some really hard things to let go of in order to move the mission forward. And so then Peter preaches to them Jesus and the spirit of God shows up and Cornelius and all of that house of Gentiles are saved and Peter baptizes them. In the midst of Peter's preaching, he says, I realize that all the prophets testify about Jesus and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is not something he believed earlier that day when he woke up. He did not believe this is what the prophets taught. This is not what he believed the Old Testament taught. 
He did not believe that it was for everyone. He believed, like all the other Christians at this point in time, that it was only for the Jews. We are 10 years into the church and Peter has never been inside a Gentile's house. We are 10 years in and the first Christians, the leaders of the church are still holding on to age old prejudice. We are 10 years in to the church and the church is still looking at people as second class citizens as though they are less than, less important to God, less loved than God, not invited by God, not wanted by God. 10 years in, the best Christians perhaps in the history of the world. And they don't even love the world. Jesus told them to go into all the world. And most of the world were Gentiles. They didn't, the first Christians didn't even love most of the world at this time. This is something that we have struggled with for 2,000 years in different ways at different times in our past. There are some of us who have carried into the present past prejudice past ideas about people and groups that we need to let go of in order to further the mission of the church. And this was difficult for Peter. He says, all you gotta do is believe. This is not about behaving. This is not about keeping the law. This is about whosoever believes, whoever you are, whatever you've done, God invites you into the family of God. And so Cornelius becomes the first Gentile convert. And so word gets down to the church leaders in Jerusalem. And it says that the circumcised believers, because this is probably the group of people that took word back down to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jewish Christians who were with Peter, they were astonished. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They couldn't believe that God would save that type of person. They couldn't believe that God would save those people. Can you imagine Christians thinking that about people coming to faith in Christ? Have you ever heard of such craziness? Of course you have. And so now God isn't fitting into the box that he had always fit inside of. They'd been handed a box as children. They'd been handed a box as, you know, teenagers or young adults. And, and they were taught this is the box and God fits inside this box. And now all of a sudden God does not fit in that box. All the categories they had been raised with, all the categories that they had been taught and all the labels that they had been taught their entire life were now being torn down, deconstructed, and it was uncomfortable. And they were having to let those things go because it just wasn't compatible with this message that Jesus had for the world. So word gets down to Jerusalem and says, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, again, Jewish Christians, they criticized him and said, you, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. What? You, went in, you were seen with them. I mean, this is what kind of stuff was going on at this particular time in the church. You went into their house. I saw who you were with. How could you do such a thing? And then Peter told them the story. And it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance at least alive. And they're letting go of some things. Here's what we're seeing. They abandoned the theologies, interpretations, and feelings that created distance and made enemies of the very people they were called to reach. That's, what, that's what's happening. And, and it was so emotional and so painful at this particular time. And so they understood that moving forward meant leaving behind prejudice, fear of certain groups, labels of certain people. 
Anything that's going to cause you not to reach out to someone who is far from God, they're learning to let it go. Even if it meant being criticized by the Christians, by their believers, even if it meant that they had to change their mind about some things, even if it meant they, they had to be uncomfortable for a while. And so this was a really big deal because something happens as a result of this and this is where we end it. And we'll pick back up next week. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word to only Jews. Some of them, now listen to this, some of them. Some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. They went to Antioch and they began to speak to Greeks also, or Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. We don't even know who they were. We don't even know their names, but some of them decided to do what was considered inappropriate, unpopular, out of bounds. They decided to do something that may raise eyebrows, that might be a bit scandalous, that might be criticized, that may be misrepresented or misunderstood. And there were some Jewish believers who decided to cross over the line and start inviting Gentiles in to the family of God. They looked at Gentiles and the love of God started working on their heart in such a way they began to think to themselves, how can we think this is only for us? How can we believe on any level that God is not also inviting them as well? What God had done in the world was for the world. And it says the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And this is the beginning of the church at Antioch. And it says, when the news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to investigate what was happening at this church. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. And he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. This is the beginning of what I think is the greatest church in the history of Christianity. It was the first church that invited whosoever will in. Up until that time, there had been prejudice, there had been discrimination, there had been certain groups that had been looked down on and dismissed and disinvited, hated. But now all of a sudden, a church says, God loves every one of you, Jews and Gentiles, and he invites you in to receive by faith his gift of grace. And the church of Antioch replaces the church at Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem fades into irrelevance because they failed to grasp what God wanted to do in the world. The church at Antioch thrived. They sent Paul and Barnabas out to tell the other nations of the Roman Empire about Jesus. And that was the first time the gospel moved west. It moved in our direction. Gentiles, like most of us, were now invited in. And here's what we learn from the church at Antioch. A move of God always moves us in the direction of those far from God. A move of God, a true move of God, 
always moves us in the direction of those far from God, regardless of who they are, regardless of what we think they're guilty of, regardless. A move of God always moves us in the direction of those far from God. If we are going to continue to have a move of God at the Creek Church, it will always move us in the direction of those who are far from God. And if we stop moving in the direction of those who are far from God, we have stopped experiencing a move of God. God was moving at Antioch and the people started moving towards those who were far from God. Antioch reminds us that the grace of God is bigger and better than we think it is. Christians have believed from that moment on that we are saved by receiving God's grace and not by keeping God's law. We have believed ever since this time as the theology of the church started getting worked out that we are saved by grace through faith, that it is the gift of God lest any of us should ever be able to boast about what we did to come to God. From that moment on, the church began to embrace the idea that it's not about what you should do. It's about what God has already done through His Son on the cross, through His resurrection, that makes us available to be brought back into the family of God. And this church reminds us that the love of God tears down walls. It never builds them. The city of Antioch had a literal wall through the city in the first century to keep different groups away from different groups because they could not get along. But all of a sudden, at this church in Antioch, you could walk in and find Jewish people holding hands with Gentile people who are holding hands with Samaritans, who are holding hands with Scythians and barbarians. And they all met together at the table of the Lord. Sinners, and each, every, each and every one of them, sinners. But now, sinners saved by grace. No big sinners, no little sinners, just, just sinners. And the church in Antioch decided that they were not going to make it difficult for people who wanted to turn to God, to turn to God. And I think when it comes to Antioch, I want us to be like that church. I want us to stay being that church because there's too many people far from God who needs us to move in their direction. Heavenly Father, God, may the love of God that tore down the walls between God and man, that tore down the walls between Jewish people and Gentile people, that tore down the walls between male and female, that tore down all the walls of division, May that be the same love of God that arrests our heart as the local church. That when we look out and we see those far from God, that we know how you feel about them. You love them. You gave your life for them. And you've got the greatest gift available for them. Forgiveness. Not based on what they can do for you, but based on what you have done for them. So God, help us to be your church. In Jesus' name, help us to love the way that we have been loved. Amen.